The following audio is from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Boy, it is a joy to be with you this morning. My name's Kenan Vaughn. I've got the privilege of uh, being a pastor here at Harvest Church, and I want to tell you, this is a... Uh, this is a real treat this time of year. You people are beautiful people. I love to, um, to celebrate Christmas with you and to anticipate. You know, that word Advent means the coming. We are still anticipating a coming. We're celebrating that the Christ has come, and we are anticipating that he will come again, his second coming. And so this is one of my, well, this is my favorite time of the year. And uh, to have such a, a wonderful church family to celebrate this with, I hope you guys are enjoying the Advent study that we're kind of all doing together. You may have your own, but I uh, do encourage you to do something as a family or with your roommates or at least in your own devotional life uh, to really have your spirit kind of aligned with some kind of a, a preparation for celebrating and anticipating the Advent, the coming of Christ. We're in Jonah. Uh, if you want to turn there, we're in part three, which is chapter four. We've done this in a three-part series. And uh, so what we've seen so far, just a little runway in, is um, this is not just a story about a, uh, a prophet on the run and a great storm and a big whale and fish puke. And I mean, there's more going on in Jonah than that. And what it really is, and I hope that as we kind of uh, round third and head home in our series that it will become more and more evident even this morning. This is about the relentless pursuit of a rebel like me by a God of compassion and a God of mercy. And that's why the title this morning is I Am Jonah. I don't want us to be able to leave here really being, um, you know, uh, really schooled on all the ways that Je Jonah was a rebel um, without seeing the reflection of Jonah in our own hearts because it is abundant, sadly, uh, for me at least, to see how much of Jonah is in me and I am in Jonah. So I want us to see ourselves in the story, but I don't want us to miss the hero, and that is God is redeeming us, and he is pursuing us with a, re with a relentless love. And so Jonah gets this command, go to the Ninevites and share with them uh, the, the, this message that your wickedness has risen up to me, and I'm about to bring judgment lest you repent. Um, the reason that was so scary was because the Ninevites are so scary. They're, they're the big, bad orcs of their day. They're the world empire. They're the largest, baddest dudes. They're known for pillaging and raping and burning and stealing and destroying and decapitating, and, and they just have no mercy on their enemies. And, uh, and so it's, it's a big, bad people in an indestructible fortress-like city. And that's where Jonah is, Jonah is told to go and, and to give his message. And so, uh, sure, if he's human, he's going to be afraid. But we find out as the story unfolds, it's not just that he's afraid of his life or afraid for his life. It's that he is afraid that God might actually give mercy to these people. And that bothers him because uh, they bother him. And he hates them so much, like he's so consumed by his hatred for the Ninevites that he can't fathom a, a more disgusting or um, repulsive thought than God's mercy going forth on them and God loving them in the midst of their sin. Like he can't stand that. And so when God says go, he says no, he stomps his foot, he runs. We have the slide up there that showed you that, uh, well, there it is again. Man, these guys are good. Uh, that Nineveh's 550 miles. That's where God told him to go. He was, he was near Joppa. God told him to go to Nineveh. He goes to Tarshish. That's a, that's a, that's a screaming, yelling, no. Uh, he goes to the ends of the earth in the uh, opposite direction from where God has told him to go. And he's in, obviously, he's in uh, disobedience. And, uh, and so God does something. God responds. He sends a storm. And if you're just reading, if it's kind of your first time through, if you're reading the story to your kids, they might even think, oh, I see. God's going to take him down. 
And by the way, that's even what Jonah thought. He said, uh, hey, uh, this is the Lord doing this. I'm in sin. You're going to have to throw me overboard. Until you uh, give me over to God, who clearly is after me to kill me, then you, you, you know, this, this storm is, is never going to cease. It's never going to slow down. And so even Jonah thought God is paying him back. He's, bringing, he's getting his revenge. He's going to kill him. And we find out as we read through chapter 2 that God is not after Jonah in a way as to pay him back. So we see God brings this storm in order to bring him back to his presence. And that becomes abundantly clear when he sends a whale to swallow Jonah, not to kill him, but to rescue him, to literally bring him back and, and not just vomit him back on shore uh, there where he started off in Joppa so he could uh, return to his mission, but return him to his presence. When Jonah flee, it's told us in chapter one, he fleed the presence of the Lord. And so God is bringing him back to right relationship with him. He's giving him a chance to repent, get right. He loves him enough to do that. And the application two weeks ago was, when you and I are on the run, and inevitably we will be, this sanctification, y'all remember that series? It wasn't too long. It's a process. We are regular runners. And when we run, we can trust that God loves us enough to bring storms into our lives. It's not just to punish us. It's not God's lightning bolt of I told you so. It's that he loves us enough to squeeze us a little bit so that we might repent and he uses those storms to bring us back to repentance, back into his presence. Not trying to kill us, he could do that easily. He's trying to bring us back into his presence. And so Jonah finally gets that message and uh, he has a different perspective, a renewed perspective in the belly of a whale, as I suppose would happen to any of us. And uh, three days he's there, he's considering, and he comes out with the great conclusion, you know, this isn't about me, salvation belongs to the Lord. I'm gonna do what God has told me to do. So chapter three, he goes to the Ninevites, and he does it, man. He proclaims the message. And, and you know, we're kind of like bracing ourselves thinking, here, here it comes. They're, they're going to do one of their famous, you know, torture methods on Jonah. Um, and the wildest thing happens. Chapter 3 is, is so shocking. They actually heed the message. Like the big, bad Ninevites, the, the famous, they're famous for how big of pagans they are and how evil and how wicked and how godless. And they heed the message. And they repent. They repent with sackcloth and ashes, not only on themselves, but on their animals. If you've ever put, tried to put sackcloth on an animal, that's some serious repentance. All right? They, they are, I mean, they are prostrate before the Lord. They are seeking his mercy. And, and we see something there. And uh, Steve talked about it last, last week, that God hears us, hears our cry uh, when we cry out for mercy, when we have a repentant heart. Uh, and and the, the beautiful thing about him, we see that in Jonah's life, we also see that in the Ninevites' life, is those are two very different people. Here's the child of God who's on the run, who's kind of throwing a tincture tantrum because God's asking him to do what he doesn't want to do. And then there's the heathen, the abject, lifelong, godless pagan. In both cases, God hears. Both cases, he responds with mercy. Both cases, he brings his steadfast love. Point of that is this. It doesn't matter which one you are. It doesn't matter how far from God you are, whether you are a child of God on the run or whether you have been a lifelong atheist. You have lived your life in rebellion to God. If you cry out to God with literally a surrendered heart, like if here's your cry, God, I can't do it anymore. I don't wanna run my own race. I wanna confess my sin, surrender, turn back to the Lord. Here's the deal. If you put your hope and your confidence squarely on the shoulders of God's gracious provision. It was a whale for Jonah, it's Jesus for us. He will not abandon you. He will never forsake you. You'll be every bit as renewed and restored and brought back to the presence and under the mercy of God as Jonah, as the Ninevites, same for us. 
So the end of chapter three is really this awesome thing, like God saw what they did and in the Ninevites' repentance, how this is verse 10 of chapter three, how they turned from their evil and he relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. End of story, amen, feel good, prophetic book of the year. I mean, this is great. All we need is verse 11 that says, and Jonah lived happily ever after. But what's mystifying is there's a whole other chapter like, it doesn't end there. Like, there's a whole nother chapter, and in this whole nother chapter, it, it's crazy. Things take kind of an awkward turn. Like, this has been a great story of redemption, Jonah's redemption and the Ninevites' redemption, and yet it's just kind of come to this squealing, awkward halt. It's like being in a movie. You're just watching a great movie. I mean, you're, you're roused. You're edge of your seat. You're thinking this is one of the best ever, and then the ending comes, and you're just kind of, wait, what? Like, I can't even leave the theater. Like, like something else needs to happen. We're going to kind of come to that kind of a deal at the end of chapter 4, a really awkward ending, and let me tell you why we're going to do it. So far, Jonah has come out of his outward, obvious to everyone around him, rebellious sin, and he's doing what God has asked him to do. The problem is, in his heart, he's still a rebel. And God, the reason there's chapter 4 is God is not most interested in our behavior modification. He's not most interested in us keeping it between the lines. He's not most interested in our moralism. God is most after our heart. And he's got Jonah's obedience right now, but he doesn't have his heart. And so he's still going after Jonah in chapter four. You know, hang in there. I can just about promise you he's gonna come after you chapter four. Let's ask him to do it. Father, thank you for a few moments where we can be in your word this morning. And uh, Lord, I do ask that, that, we would, that we would really feel the weight of your glory in this chapter, that we, that we would be able to sit in Jonah's shoes if they fit, and, and my goodness, they will, and that we would hear your words and your warnings and your rebukes to Jonah, and we would know that these rebukes are true to your character, they're not just true to this context. They're true to who you are, and thus they apply to who we are because we are so much like Jonah. So God, draw us near to you. Do heart surgery where it needs to be done that there's less of Jonah in us, more of Jesus in us. Pray that as I preach this morning that he might increase, that I must decrease. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, chapter four, verse one. And remember the context, we're on the heels of the Ninevite repentance, national repentance by the heathen wicked empire. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. How about that? Like if you're a prophet, your whole vocation is taking the word of God, which is a word to repent. Trust God and not in your wicked ways. This is victory. Like Jonah, they did what you said. This is where you're supposed to do a touchdown dance. And Jonah is displeased exceedingly. And he was angry. That's just interesting. Like, what's going on with Jonah? Well, verse two, and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Like, this is why I ran. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew it. I knew this would happen. 
Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What? Uh, <laughs> I mean, this already preaches itself. I don't even, sometimes I don't even know if I need to expound on this. Like, you guys see it, right? Like, uh, Jonah's angry that they repented. He's mad that they received, you know, no, let me, here's what he's mad. He's mad that they don't get what they deserve. Because they clearly deserve the judgment of God. I mean, they are cutting people's heads off. They are killing women and children. They are burning people's lives and livelihoods. Like, like these are evil, wicked, grotesque people. They clearly deserve judgment. Amen. He's mad they don't get what they deserve. But you know why he's really mad? He's even madder about that one little phrase in verse two. I knew that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in, there's this word that comes up in almost every book we teach, chesed, steadfast love. I am mad that you would not only give these people, not only not give them what they deserve, but that you would give them what they don't deserve. Like that you would bestow your steadfast, covenantal, merciful love on these people that are so wicked in their sin. How could you do that? And God's response, look at this, verse four. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Like, do you do well to be angry about the fact that I give mercy to sinners? Like, seriously, Jonah? Hey, Jonah, Jonah, let's just review the last week of your life real quick. Okay, do you remember I came to you and you're a prophet, you're my chosen one, I've called you, I've bestowed my mercy, grace, and steadfast love, and I said, give this message to a lost, heathen country that they need to repent or else my judgment will come. And you know what you said? You stomped your foot. You said no. You were in the opposite direction. Jonah, do you remember that? I brought a storm not to kill you because I loved you, and, and, and you slept through that until it bothered those around you and it, and it disrupted their life so much, they threw you overboard. And then you knew you were gonna drown because you deserved to drown. And Jonah, I sent a whale, and I rescued you from drowning, and I brought you not just to dry land, but I restored you as my servant and gave you the purpose of your salvation and said, let's go. And you're gonna be mad that I have mercy on sinners? Am I hearing you right, Jonah? So I should have let you drown because that's what you deserved. Jonah, do you do well to be angry that I would give my steadfast love to sinners like the Ninevites who are sinners like you? Do you do well? Um, let me say this. I think one of the big ideas that comes out of the scripture immediately in this text is um, God's heart is for the lost. You know, I love 1 Timothy 1.15. Here's a trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Paul will write of who I'm the worst. I'm the chief of all sinners. Uh, you need to know this. It, it doesn't matter whether you're this child of God that just keeps stubbing your toe, keeps stumbling, keeps, keeps going wayward, keeps waking up in a distant lane, keeps coming to your senses, or if you've been in rebellion to the things of God your entire life, here's what you need to know. 
That cross reminds us that there is a God who has relentlessly pursued and is to this day relentlessly pursuing your heart in the midst of your rebellion. The proof is the cross that Jesus came and he took on the brunt of what we deserve. He literally paid the penalty for our sin. Listen to why he did it. You ready for this? So that we do not get what we deserve. Judgment. And so that we get what we do not deserve. Mercy, grace, steadfast love. Can I just say to you, I'm glad that our God is not one who just merely gives us what we deserve. Not a one of us would be here today. I'm glad that he's not just a God of justice, though he is, but he's a God of compassion. Matter of fact, I stumbled across a verse this week in Exodus 34. I don't know if you guys have ever stumbled into Exodus 34, but I stumbled in. And it's the, the context is this, this chapter where uh, Moses is kind of re-upping with God because he got the original Ten Commandments, came down, and the people under Aaron had thrown all their jewelry in, made golden uh, calves and were worshiping them. Really bad deal. God got angry. He was going to take them out. Moses pleaded as a mediator that he wouldn't, um, much like Jesus does with us. God relents of his anger, and, and, but Moses, in his anger, had thrown down the Ten Commandments and, and, and uh, shattered them. So uh, God tells him, get you two new tablets and come on up, and I'm going to re-inscribe. So Moses goes back up to the mountain, kind of round two, Exodus 34, and it was really neat. God passes his presence before Moses. And, uh, and you're reading this, and I'm literally thinking, now why is he passing his presence before Moses? Cool. Uh, the next verse tells you why he's doing it. Passing his presence before Moses, and, uh, and he says to him, and I wish I knew if he whispered or he shouted, because I can see either one. But he says to him, Yahweh, Yahweh. Lord, God of compassion and mercy. You know, I passed before Moses when Moses went up to get the tablets re-inscribed with the Ten Commandments. You know, I passed before him. He passed before him because he had a message. And the message was, I want you to know my name amidst a culture that serves every kind of God, God of war, God of fertility, God of this, that, and the other. I want you to know who I am at my essence. Yahweh, that's relational, covenant-keeping God, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. You strip everything else away. You wanna know me at my essence, Moses, compassion and mercy. That's who I am, amen? I tell you, I'm thankful that he didn't say, I'm God, I bring justice, and I bring wrath. He said, I bring compassion, and I bring mercy. And I'm thankful for that as one who is, like Jonah, prone to wander, prone to sin. And what we see so far is that Jonah he, 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 by the way, look, he's driving between the lines right here. He is, he's, he's, got, he's repented of the egregious outward, everybody knows you're in sin, sin. But now he's walking in obedience. As long as obedience means confronting and rebuking these pagans, I'm your man. But the moment it means something altogether different, the moment that God's plan doesn't cooperate with his plan, Jonah is gonna be despondent. We're about to see that Jonah, he'll literally throw his hands up. What we see is Jonah is okay to rebuke, he's okay to renounce, he's okay to do what he wants to do, but 
here's the truth about Jonah. Um, he's going through the motions. And if you're watching Jonah right here, the thought is kind of, hey, Jonah, shame on you. Like, uh, like how, how, could you, how could you not see the hypocrisy of your life? One who is so indebted to God, who has brought mercy and compassion, and yet not willing to extend it. Like, how do you not see that? And um, I tell you, that's probably just easier to see in Jonah's life than it is to see in our lives. Let me give you one example that really pictorializes uh, evangelical Christianity, this little snapshot, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe this is you too, I, I don't know, but uh, Philip Yancey, who wrote What's So Amazing About Grace, really thought-provoking book, really a good book to read. He, uh, he tells a lot of stories in there about how Christians really misunderstand the grace of the gospel, and one story he told was about an interview he did with Bill Clinton. It's in the late 90s. Bill Clinton had already had some scandals come out uh, due to his immorality, and he's talking to Yancey, and he basically says, hey, uh, you know, he, he says, Philip, I've been reading some books. I've been, trying to, I've been trying to basically get right with God. He said, look, I've done some really stupid things and some really sinful things. And he says, I know I will have to uh, live with consequences. He talks about how hard it will be to explain some of this stuff to his daughter and just that his reputation will always be tarnished. And, like, he gets that. He goes, hey, I don't have any complaints. Like, I deserve every bit of that and then some. I get it. He goes, you know what the one thing I don't really understand is? And, he, and he's, he and Yancey having this interview, and I'm not there to understand the, or to test the sincerity of his heart, but Yancey was really pricked by this. Clinton says to Yancey, you know what I, you know what I can't quite get my, my mind around is uh, how badly the evangelical Christian community hates me. Like, it's hard for me, like, it's just, it's just like, they just spit hatred and judgment. And he's like, it's, it's hard for me, like, uh, it's just hard for me to connect with these people that clearly don't understand what it is to sin. And Yancey was really, Yancey's moved by this meeting. You can see his wheels are turning. He writes an article to Christianity Today, and the article is, um, hey, evangelical Christians, can we extend grace even to Bill Clinton? And he writes this article. And in the history of Christianity Today, there's never been a more robust and volatile response to an article written than that article Yancey wrote about extending grace to Bill Clinton. Never in the history of Christianity today. The greatest response they've ever had. Bags and bags and bags and bags and bags and bags of mail came in. And the general thrust of thousands upon thousands of letters was Philip Yancey, how dare you try and extend grace to Bill Clinton? He needs to get what he deserves. I hope one of you guys didn't write one of those letters. <laughs> but you, you know what? I, you know, what I think the unbelieving world would like for us to hear. Uh, hey, a uh, Christian. That's, uh, that's what you call yourself, right? Like a little, little Christ, is that right? Am I getting that right, Christian? Okay, Christians, uh, would you guys mind just kind of rinsing off the fish puke from where God rescued you in the wretchedness of your sin but before you incite judgment on the rest of us that are also filthy in our sin? Just, would you just rinse once, then let us have it? But the stench is a little too strong, and I can't hear what you're saying. You know what one word the, uh, the world uses categorically for the church? 
Let me, let me tell you, it's not compassion. Isn't that sad? God said, Yahweh, Lord, God of compassion, that's who I am, and you're my people. And the world doesn't look at us and say, the one thing we know about the church, compassion. You know what they say? Hypocrites. You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. How can y'all be the ones to call for judgment? How can you be the ones to point your fingers and look in your self-righteous judgmentalism down your nose at us? I thought you were the ones who understood. I thought you knew what it was to receive mercy and grace instead of what you deserve. I thought you knew what it was to stand in the steadfast love of God amidst your prone to wander, prone to sin. Bill Clinton, what am I missing? I thought they were the ones that could relate. And we ought to be. Jonah ought to be. Ought to have a heart that says, oh God, save them like you saved me. But he's exceedingly angry. Now, watch this. Jonah, verse five, went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth. Let me give you a quick geography of the area. That's the hills. Don't think grassy knolls, um, you know, Southeast Texas, beautiful hill country, don't think that. Uh, or East Tennessee, beautiful hill, don't think that. Think Mediterranean desert, modern day Iraq. Okay, think sand dunes. All right, hills of just hot, scorching sand. Now, Jonah climbs up on one. What's he doing? There's, there's only one plausible explanation for what's he doing. He goes up there to watch what happens. Well, uh, they repented. God said, okay, I'm not gonna judge you. What do you think's gonna happen? Nothing. But Jonah has hope that something will indeed happen. You know what his hope is? That uh, God would change his mind, that he would relent in, of his relenting, and he would rain down judgment. That maybe these, these heathens will say they repent because they're trying to pull a fast one on God, but their true character will come out tomorrow, God will see it, and he will torch the Ninevites. And Jonah wants to have the best seat in the house. <coughs> so he goes up on this hill, builds a booth, tries to make it where it provides some shade. We're gonna see it doesn't provide much. And by the way, his only building materials will be stone, sand, and maybe a few sticks. Try to ever build a stone booth, you're gonna find out. Walls, not so bad. Roof, very difficult. And so he's under this deal, and he's probably being scorched when the sun is high at midday. And so, verse six, now the Lord God appointed a plant. Sovereignly, God's gonna make this little plant shoot up and, and grow and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So here's Jonah, exceedingly angry and displeased because God would have mercy on a heathen, complete hypocritical in his, hypocrite in his understanding of the gospel, and God gives him a little plant, a little temporary comfort to save him from the sun that was probably burning his balding head from his time in the whale, and look at this, Jonah was exceedingly glad. I mean, this is an emotionally volatile dude. And now he's exceedingly glad because of the way, when I think exceedingly glad, I think about my five-year-old son. His name is Jonathan. He is full of so much joy, and he has a way to kind of show you what's going on inside of him. Um, the other two, you know, if something, you know, we're going, we did a hot chocolate bar the other night. 
and when we announced we were doing, this was Friday night, family night, we had a hot chocolate bar, and my wife did it right. Like, there was every kind of possible thing you'd ever want in hot chocolate. And, uh, and when the boys saw it, like, you know, Caleb, you know, he just kind of does a subtle smile and is like, you know, oh, shucks, thanks, Mom. And, and Luke's like, yeah, you know, fist bump, and I'm so fired up. But Jonathan, stuff wells up inside of him. And, and, and his little brother, his brothers call him Joyful John, wells up, and he's got this little thing. When it gets up in there, he does this little... And some of y'all that have babysat in our house know this is true. He does this little dance. Uh, so much so, and we all fall out. Like his brothers, his mom and I, we love it. We call it the John John. Like, and it's this little, you can't contain your, he's like, ah! Like it's this little John John dance. And it is when he is exceedingly glad. So I've got this deal. I'm reading this, and I'm going, man, Jonah. And all I can see is Jonah doing his little John John dance. Like hot, like got, and, but also there's this plant like out of nowhere, and it's shade, and it's just like, yes, and he's, ah, he's just exceedingly glad. And I want you to see why he's exceedingly glad. That plant saves him from his discomfort. The gospel goes forth exceedingly angry. Mercy on the sinner, exceedingly angry. Rescue you from your present discomfort, exceedingly glad. You guys see what's going on here? We have a man that is consumed, not with the glory of God among the nations, consumed with his own life and his own comfort, consumed. Like his day-to-day emotions are a visceral response to his temporal comfort. Exceedingly glad, a little plant pops up. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. So he's exceedingly glad. What do you guys think? How's he going to handle this? Now there's a worm attacking the plant. It's withered. And when the sun rose, verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind. This is called a Soraka in the Mediterranean desert. And these winds are known to come from the east and to immediately raise the temperature 25 degrees. So if it was 95, conservatively, in the Mediterranean desert, as he sat in his little booth with all this, only this little plant for shade, all of a sudden the, uh, the temperature goes to 120 degrees. There's a scorching east wind, and your plant's dead. And the sun beat down on his head so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. Not, hey God, what are you doing? Not, God, let me endure this well that I might not shame your name before this heathen people that needs to know that you're most interested in their compassion. I'm the tangible representation of that. No, I want to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Second time he said that. First time is when the heathen receives mercy. Second time is when you take away his comfort. Now that's almost too personal, isn't it? That almost is like got the American church written all over it. When God is after the heathens who are trying to kill us. And when he takes away our blankie. When he takes away that which brings us temporal comfort. Whatever it may be. We'd rather die than to live. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Like, isn't that the second time he said that? Like, do you do well to be angry that 
I would have mercy on sinners. And Jonah, do you do well to be angry that I would take away your comfort? Like seriously, Jonah, in light of what I've done for you, you're gonna let your, revol- your life revolve around whether the plant that sprung up, which you didn't deserve, you didn't earn it, it was just a blessing for you to enjoy, and then it's gone, and discomfort is there for you to endure, all for my glory. Do you do well to wrap your life around the emotional response to your day-to-day comfort? Do you do, is that, do you do well, is that, how's that working for you, Jonah? And Jonah says, just like a toddler when you take his blanket away, yes, I do well. I'm, I do well to be angry. I'm angry enough to die. And we see Jonah just ultimately acting the fool. And I want to tell you, um, so far the big takeaway for me is, Lord, let me not be like a Jonah in the sense that I don't understand the depth of your steadfast love, your grace, your mercy given to me in light of my sin, that I ever become callous or indifferent to the fact that you might be doing that to those others in my life that are still lost and far from you and in spiritual darkness. Let let that never not be the great joy of my salvation to be able to be a light in the darkness that they may see me and know that you still love them in their sin. And then underneath that, whatever you send my way, the, the blessings of a plant, the discomfort of a scorching sun, let me endure as a good soldier so that again these people might see my suffering and believe that you are a God of compassion and mercy who comforts us, who gives us peace amidst the storms, perspective amidst the suffering, joy in the midst of sadness, hope everlasting. Do you guys see this? Here's the main point, verse 10 and 11, main point. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, Jonah. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did not make it grow, which came into being at night, perished night. It's a comfort. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And you act like it's all a life. Do you see that? Like, Jonah, what are you doing? Do you do well to act like that? Like life's about the plant. Wake up, Jonah. Watch this. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? No idea on the cattle. (laughs) And God drops the mic, walks off the stage, like, like, that's it. Like, watch this, watch this. That's Jonah. How do you end on that? That God, that God would say, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Jonah, you pity the plant. I pity the people stuck in their spiritual bondage. The way your heart breaks for your comfort, that's the way my heart breaks with compassion. Jonah, do you do well to live like that? 
And by the way, he gives this, he, 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 we don't have, any, I, love, I love this most brilliant, this might be the most brilliant ending of any book in the Bible because we don't get Jonah's response. Jonah doesn't write out his response and we study it, determine that, you know, if it was wise or foolish or, like, we don't get that. We get an open-ended question that's just lobbed out there to Jonah and the book ends with Jonah having to go, wait a minute, what am I clinging to? What is my hope? plant the God of compassion and mercy like what controls me the plant the desire to make him known among the nations like what consumes me the plant compassion for those who don't know the right hand from the left and Jonah just has to wrestle with this in his day and we have got to wrestle with this in our day and here's how you know Here's how you know whether you, like Jonah, are consumed, controlled with your day-to-day comfort and not compassion, not zeal for the glory of God. Here's how you know. Are you ready? What makes you dance? What makes you dance? What just kind of wells up that joy in your heart like that hot chocolate bar does for my boys, like that plant does in its temporary comfort for Jonah? What just kind of produces that little joy that you just, ah, he's so excited. He finally asked me out. She finally said yes. They finally appreciated me at work and gave me a promotion. He or she finally appreciates what I do around the house. I got a good report on my health. The stock market, did you see it like yesterday or the day before? Like it like shot up, like just green. What makes you dance? I'll tell you, whatever brings you exceeding joy, I'll tell you this, that that's your plant. And if your plan is anything other than the God of mercy and the God of compassion, you can trust in the midst of shade or sunlight, joy or suffering. If your plan is anything, if your trust is in anything else that thrives today and withers tomorrow, your life will look just like Jonah's, exceedingly glad, exceedingly angry, exceedingly glad, exceedingly angry. And the world will look at you and all they'll see is hypocrite. The church of Jesus Christ is just a bunch of people that call themselves Christians but are not consumed with what he was consumed with. Are merely consumed with their own lives, their own comfort, their own security, their own wealth, their own health, their own kingdom agenda. Then the New Testament has strong words. It basically says we're not Christians at all. Call that whatever you want but it's not a little Christ. Consumed with comfort. Look, let me, let me tell you something. 
I gotta raise my hand and be honest with this. Uh, as much as I wanna see lost people come to Christ, and I do, I wanna see our, my whole neighborhood come to Christ. I wanna see uh, lost people that I know in different contexts come to Christ. I wanna see nations where there's no gospel witness come to Christ. I desperately wanna see all that. But truth be told, if you step me out of my body here, and if I can go take a seat uh, you know, at the left hand of God, the Father in heaven, um, and, and just kind of look down on my life for a second, I have no doubt in my mind that I would at least far more often than I would like to admit, be ashamed of what I see. I'd watch my life thinking, golly, I'm glad I'm not like Jonah, but then I'd watch and I'd see a guy that when the blessings come, exceeding joy, I'd watch myself do a lot of dancing around temporary comfort that comes into my life. And then I'd watch in dismay as when those comforts are removed and when I'm called to endure, when I'm called to suffer with joy, when I'm called to represent Christ in the hard times, which is, by the way, where most people get saved in brokenness, that they can relate to somebody else that knows what it is to be broken and still be full. That in those times, you take those things away, and I am pulling temper tantrums. I'm, I'm, my joy's gone, I'm angry. I had a girl in our discipleship community this week. I loved her honesty, and I was so convicted by what she said, I almost had to just go into prostrate on the floor right in front of her. She said, uh, she said, you know, I was on the phone with Comcast this week. And I was like, oh, gosh. Like, I, I, I'm done. I, because I knew where this was going, and I was guilty. She said, you know, I, I, I think I won the battle, but I lost the war. Like, I got my $10 a month back, and they owed it to me. They had been really hosing me. And you know, I mean, that just, gosh, I was angry. But let me tell you, when I hung up, I'm not sure that that person had any idea that I was a Christ follower, nor did I want them to know. You know what that's indicative of? A whole lot of things in my life where when you take my daily little tangible comforts away, I'm so consumed with those that I've become callous and indifferent to what God is doing in me and in those around me for his glory. And now I'm just a, I'm just a slave to the emotional response of the daily comforts. I don't even know what you call that. But that is the farthest thing from denying myself, taking up my cross, following Jesus. That is a long way from, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's just, a, it's just a long way from Jesus. Can I kind of round third and head home telling you something on this? Um, where this really becomes abundantly clear in my eyes is uh, when you look at Jesus, who is, is, is uh, we called him the ultimate Jonah two weeks ago. I think that's fair. He's also, he's just, he's just like the truer Jonah. He's the greater Jonah. And in some cases, he's like the anti-Jonah. Hear it. Jonah's called to leave his comfort zone to minister to the Ninevites. Jesus is called to leave the ultimate comfort zone to minister to us. Jonah goes with a callous, indifferent heart towards those he's sharing the good news of the gospel. Jesus goes, and in Matthew 10, he sees them like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, and his heart breaks wide open. Jonah is called to preach. Jesus is called to die. Jonah is thought to be dead. Jesus actually had to die and be raised again. Jonah's heart attitude to God is not your will, but mine be done. Jesus' heart attitude toward the Father is not my will, but yours be done. And when you start seeing Jonah in light of Jesus, here's the question. When the world looks at you, do they see more 
Jonah or do they see more Jesus? Tim Keller said this. I thought it was really good. He said about the ending of this book, he said, you know, it's like God pulled back the bow and took a, uh, an, an arrow of loving rebuke and he let it go right at Jonah's heart. And this question comes in, hey, you're consumed with your comfort. Hey, the plant, really? The plant? Jonah, wake up. Look at what I'm doing among the nations for my glory. Can you see him? And the arrow's going right at his heart. But then Jonah disappears. And the question remains, and now it's you and me. And the arrow is coming right at our heart. And the book ends with God saying, can you see what I'm doing for my glory among the nations? Or are you blinded by your desire to be comfortable? Can you see? Do you do well to be angry about the withering? Do you do well to be angry about whom I choose to bestow my mercy on. Can you see what I'm doing? Will you join me in my mission? And how you answer that question will determine whether or not when the world looks at you, they'll see Jonah or they'll see Jesus. Lord, I thank you for this text. I thank you for this book that reminds me that my life is not my own. I've been bought at a price. The greatest privilege I have as a new creation is to herald the good news of the gospel, is to receive your blessing and receive discomfort, that knowing that you bring storms in my life, both so that I might repent and come back to you and repent of sin as I need it so I can live in joyful obedience, but also so that others might see my life and know that I'm comforted not by my iron will in the midst of suffering, but by one who holds me in the palms of his hands and sustains me. That I might have peace that passes understanding, that I might have joy and sadness, that I might have perspective and suffering and hope everlasting because you would produce those things in my heart. God, I need to repent before you now and before these people. And Lord, I, I often cling to things of this world and, that, and that's what puts me in a good mood today or a bad mood today. And my hope and my confidence and my security and my identity can so quickly be tethered to little things that are here today and gone tomorrow. God, I want to be tethered to you in the glorious mission of the gospel going forth that my hope will not be shaken that as long as you are at work redeeming a people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, that I can be filled with the fruits of the Spirit. Not just see glimpses of love and peace and patience and joy and kindness and gentleness and self-control, but see a life that is being forged in those characteristics because it's a life surrendered. That's what's being produced as I've lifted my eyes and as I am focused on your kingdom agenda, that I can lose myself, not in the plant, but in the people. God, let us be a church who focuses not on that which thrives and withers, but that which you are focused on. 
people that don't know their right hand from their left might come to know the truth that they are loved in their sin and that you have made a way through Jesus Christ for them to return home. And let us be, let us be like open doors that invite people to come in and to dine with you. Lord, bring whatever circumstances you want to bring in our lives that may help others to see you and let us endure well for the sake of the gospel. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're going to have a time of communion and I want to say this. Two weeks ago when we, we did this, I, had, I said, hey, this is, a, this is really a good time. Jonah's really all about repentance. This is a great time to repent of sin. And, and two weeks ago, if you heard me say that, I think you would have heard that from the lens of outward, egregious, everybody knows it, public sin, because that's kind of what Jonah's was. Well, today I want to give you the same call, and that is to repent. But I want you to know, this isn't the outward, egregious, hopefully you've confessed and repented and are confessing and repenting of that sin. But this is that piece which the person on your right or your left wouldn't even know it. Like, your own spouse may not know it. It's that heart attitude. It's that down deep what controls you, what consumes you. And if it's not the things of God, if it's not his glory among the nations, if it's the tangible realities of your everyday comforts, then today the call is to repent of that. Repent of a heart attitude that is empty. And ask God to fill you, not with a desire for comfort, but a compassion and desire to be on mission with him. And I hope everlasting. The tables are open. Thank you for listening to the audio from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Feel free to make copies and distribute this content, but please do not charge for those copies.